Hey, this is Shiragam, host of the Hashishin. I want to welcome you to the 12th episode. And as always, thank you for tuning in. I also want to welcome you to a new year and to season two of the podcast. This episode is brought to you by our 25 amazing Patreon supporters. I want to thank each and every one of you because without your generosity and support, we literally couldn't have released this episode. So, everyone listening, seriously, thank our Patreon community for bringing you episode 12. On a different note, I want to thank you all for your continued listening. We unbelievably cracked 21,000 downloads as of last week, and we got through our iTunes shadow ban, making the podcast searchable again. So, if you can't contribute financially, you can always contribute by writing an iTunes review. They're super valuable to a grassroots podcast like ourselves and getting the information out there to more people. Speaking of support, our first goal on Patreon is to reach 50 supporters. So we have 25 and we're halfway there. Last month's episode got downloaded almost 1,800 times, meaning only 1.4% of the people who listen were able to support us. As most listeners now know about hash, and as hash makers definitely know, We need to get the yields up to keep the podcast going. So, if you've been meaning to support, now is a great time. We're working on some things that we're excited to share exclusively with our Patreon community. Again, you can find us at www.patreon.com backslash the hashish in with two N's. The link is also in our Instagram bio. I sincerely hope you enjoy this episode with Mila, the hash queen. And again, thank you for listening. Welcome to the 12th episode of the Hashishin. I'm your host, Shirag Mumir. I am truly honored to be here with Hash Royalty, the Hash Queen herself. Mila, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate your time. So, we got a chance to meet here in Miami. Yes. And we just coming fresh off Dabadoo. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about the event and how it started? Actually, Dabadoo started as just a party for my 69th birthday. Okay. And there was no intention of ever doing one again. Right. But we did that one in Amsterdam, and people loved it so much that they talked me into doing another one in Barcelona four months later, just uh, before the Spanabis there. And since then, it's just been going. Now I'm on a tour through South America and here in Miami for Dabadoo. But after I finish here, I'll be going down to Colombia、okay. to do the last Dabadoo of the tour. And that's going to be on an island in the Caribbean. Wow. So I'm very excited about that. Yeah, that yeah. sounds exciting. Yeah. yeah the, you know, the one here was wonderful. Yeah. So I wanted to commend you and your team yeah. for that. Yeah. And you said it started in Amsterdam for your 69th birthday. What year was that? I'm curious. That would be, I'm born 44, so 69 would be 100. 2013, maybe. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah,、so、yeah it was 2013. That's it. And have you been having fun? Yes. And、um, somehow I feel I kind of hit the right spot because bringing together all these people who are really interested and loving extracts, hash, rosin, for them it's an opportunity to meet many brothers. Right. You know, most of them live quite far here, this way, that way, and maybe in their own community they don't even have so many people they can relate to. But at the Dabadoo, they're all there, whether they come from Canada or South America or wherever they come from, Europe. 
everybody has the same love. Yeah. And that's, I think, what pulls it together. Like when I look around at a Davido and I see everybody's communicating, which is already something in this world of today. <laughs> Not yeah. everybody's behind their phone, but everybody's chatting and talking and showing their own private little stashes to their neighbors and sharing it out. And it's just a great event and it grew like that. And It's fantastic. I enjoy each and every one. Like before coming here, I was having one in Peru and Costa Rica and in Mexico. Yeah. Each one was totally different. Each one had its own beauties. And that was just amazing. The one in uh, Peru had a whole beautiful like covering to the whole grounds. And they'd rented this hacienda for a week and had a lot of glass blowers. There was like continuous glass blowing going oh. on because they had six glass blowers and three outlets uh, to work with. Yeah. So even middle of the night, they'd be out there. Then we had one in uh, Costa Rica, which was much smaller because it's quite illegal there. So they okay. couldn't really advertise it in any way. Right. But it was really like a big Costa Rican family. And that was lovely too. And uh, George came from um, Chile and he gave a demonstration on making rosin. And you could see everybody was just loving to suck up this info. Right. Probably many of them hadn't actually only heard about it maybe. So for them, it was really nice, and the people were lovely. Then we had one in Mexico, which is the third one already. And he always times it, so it comes a couple of days after the night of the Day of the Dead. Okay. So then at midnight or at night, we go to the cemetery, and I don't know if you've ever been there. I haven't, but I've, I know the Day of the Dead is big in me. Oh, yeah. yeah, the whole cemetery is full of flowers and every grave has its family sitting there having picnics and singing or talking, story, telling stories about when grandma was still around or right. whatever. And I really felt, man, in my country we never do that. When do I ever go and sit by my parents' grave? You know, they're drinking and singing. Right. And it's very different culturally, huh? Yeah, they're still part of the family. <laughs> yeah, no, it's interesting how different places have, obviously, different views on things like that, you know? So it's really cool to hear that even though, you know, it's all Dabadoo, the experiences are so different and you yeah. get to enjoy all these different experiences. Yeah. You know, and, you know... Yeah, he did it this year. He did it in his old hotel from 1880s and it was This just was beautiful yeah had these amazing carved doors and whoever was the owner at some point had a total fetish for swimming pools <laughs> there was like seven of them <laughs> yeah that sounds like a lot of pools <laughs> and each one was more fantasy than the next one it was like <laughs> funny that sounds neat you know you mentioned in Costa Rica the legality still being yeah. obviously kind of an issue and Even here in, in the United States, obviously, yeah, it's still an issue. Yeah, yeah. And mostly all over the world. But, you know, having been around cannabis for so long in your life, I'm curious how you feel about seeing kind of this worldwide cannabis movement happening. I always find it kind of meaning something that the first place in, I think, in the States that it got legalized is the place where... Wasn't that in Washington or something? You know, this country that has led the war on drugs was actually one of the first countries to start legalizing, at least first for medical, right. and now in different states, it's all coming. And I wonder, being a democracy, how many states have to 
have it as a um, recreational drug before the government just has to fold and admit. Yeah, I mean, at some point, you know, it seems like every year a stake gets added, whether yeah. it's medical yeah. or going from medical to recreational yeah. or both. And so it's interesting, you know, I keep saying five to ten years, I think it'll be, but, you know, that's just my best guess. So. Yeah. yeah, I'm curious to see what happens. And I think it's wonderful because in my own country, alas and alack, we seem to have totally voted the wrong government the last two times and things are just going backwards. Like Amsterdam used to be famous for being ahead of the game right. and freedom and all the rest of it. Right. But now we're really lagging behind. The stupid thing is that it's not legal in Holland, which everybody assumes. Right. It's tolerated that it gets sold in the coffee shops. Government is very happy to get every penny income tax they can get out of, of there. And they also don't mind that half the products getting sold in that coffee shop are illegal imports. All the hash. It comes from Nepal. It comes from Morocco. It comes from all the Middle East and everywhere. Right. None of it's really from Holland, right. except some isolator ash and maybe some dry sift. So they don't, you know, they keep their eyes closed about all as that. As long as they get the tax money, they're <laughs> yeah. okay with that. And after 40 years, it's still illegal to grow pot in Holland. So how these coffee shops get it, you know, is always like, yeah, that was it's always, so hypocritical. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Um, and like you said, you know, I think Amsterdam specifically, but the Netherlands in general, has always been seen in the past, I would say, 20 to 30 years as, like, the place. Yes, right? yes. You know, and now it's so interesting that with a different government and a different mindset, yeah. now they've become so much more conservative, it seems, yeah. like, I guess, if you could call it that. Yeah, 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 definitely. I mean, they're trying now to make a government-organized grow situation. Really? I don't know, but, yeah, but they've been talking about that ever since I had my company, like, 25 years. Okay. <laughs> so... I'll see it when it really happens. <laughs> um, you know, before, it's sad. Yeah, it is. And, you know, again, kind of being around cannabis for so long and, you know, really a long history in, would you call it an industry? Certainly a become an industry. Right. Maybe it was a community and it grew into an industry. A community too. Definitely industry. now, I mean, the last... Weed Expo I went to in Holland, I only met CEOs and everybody's walking around in a suit. And <laughs> Very different, I imagine, than the Very past. different feeling than it used to be, and yeah, crazy. Yeah, but you know, before we started, we were talking about you receiving these Lifetime Achievement Awards. Yeah. You're going to receive one in high times. In Just next, in two days. Yeah, yeah, in two days, and you received one last year, Yeah, and you received one the year before even that you said or a chalice yeah a chalice, the year before yeah. that yeah at 16 I think yeah and you know from meeting with you the little bit that I've sensed from you you seem like a very relaxed humble down to earth person you know I really uh, was always a great follower to advise people to follow their dreams but now reality <laughs> seems to have taken a pace that I, my dream could never even have imagined right <laughs> you know I would would I ever have thought to be receiving this? No, never. You know, I, my, you know, I started off being a high school dropout and a single mom when I was just 19. So the start wasn't particularly positive right. looking. Yeah. <laughs> and I was just always working to feed the kids, educate them. 
and I'm proud to say that uh, one of them got a PhD and the other one hopefully in the next year. So that's wonderful. Yeah, and it's both of theirs. It's in the subject they've loved since I know they were little kids. That's even, yeah, it, not everybody has that, so that's yeah. special, you know, yeah. that's nice. Yeah. How do these awards or this recognition make you feel? bit confused and, and kind of, uh, well, I've learned to accept life as it comes. Right. <laughs> so, okay, that's what's happening. <laughs> but with someone like Frenchie, you might know or heard of. Yeah. Yeah. We figured out, we can't remember we actually communicated together, but we uh, were definitely both at the same New Year's party. I forget in which year, in Goa, in India. Okay. So we have that whole background in common. So I always laugh with him. I said, Frenchie, could you ever have imagined <laughs> that you are now a famous hatch maker? And, right. and we both crack up laughing because, of course, neither of us ever thought about it even, you know, weren't even aiming <laughs> to right. achieve anything like yeah, that. Yeah, there was no intention of no. that sort behind no. it. You know, it's just... And to tell you the very truth, this whole machine, the pollinator that I invented being the first machine to separate, and that's why that's the beginning of the whole people making ash movement. I made it basically purely for selfish reasons, because I couldn't find the hash that I liked. Right. And having lived in India and been in Afghanistan and Nepal and all these places, people were making the hash around me the whole time. I never really studied it like someone like Frenchie. Right. But I helped the women with whatever they were doing. And so I had some experience. Came back to Holland in 1988, and suddenly the place was full of coffee shops selling weed. Now this was the first weed I ever encountered because before there was only hash in Holland being brought in by the sailors in the 60s. Nobody was growing weed in Holland that I was aware of. Right. And actually all the way from Morocco to China, people smoke hash. So everywhere on my travels, there was never really a weed joint. It was always being made into hash. Yeah. So then I just never got used to the weed. I mean, it's not my thing. Then I started making it myself and on a flat screen like I'd been seen done over there. And it was just that one night I'm standing in front of the dryer of the clothes and the tumble of the clothes inside. Right. I flashed, that's what I'm trying to do manually. Yeah. So we tried it the next day and it worked. And that's basically the pollinator, the pollinator is yeah. a dryer <laughs> put, a to a, put to a different purpose. Yeah, a spinning separator. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. I was mentioning earlier that I read your book and by the way, it's uh, Mila, How I Became the Hash Queen. Yeah. And, uh, you know, anybody who hasn't read it, I recommend that you read it because it's really a fascinating story. And I mean, it's your life, Yeah. you know, and your children's life. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned some of your travels you know, and that's one of the things that I got from your book is that there's a common theme in your life of being in a state of movement, you know, yeah, of traveling. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Is that something that just is part of you and that always has been? Well, my parents were already traveling. My dad worked for Shell, so he was moving around. I was born in England during the war. My parents are Dutch. They met, well, as you know, they met in the States. They couldn't get to Holland, so I was born there, but before. Uh, I was three, they already moved out to Indonesia, and then moved to England, and then 11 moved to Holland. So moving was already part of my life, and I didn't feel, uh, I guess maybe people that live in the same house their whole life kind of feel, right. oh, I, I'm staying right here. But we were moving already anyway. Yeah, so it was comfortable to you. Yeah, 
Yeah. But you know, and, and a lot of the stories, there were situations that were tricky situations, yeah. scary situations. Can be, can be. And <laughs> there seemed to be a lot of braveness, you know, in your story. And I'm wondering, just like you were talking about having this intention of, you know, like, for example, you and Frenchie now being recognized for your experience and yeah, knowledge. Yeah. Was there an awareness of this braveness or was it just you were doing what you felt you needed to do at yeah, the time? Yeah. I never felt brave. <laughs> 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 But in certain situations, you got to figure out in a couple of seconds what's your best form of action. Right. Like, I think this happened after the book. Like, when I arrived in Mexico one time, at like one in the morning and these four guys with the tools and everything come and pick me up in this little bit battered old van. Okay. So we drive away from the airport and some pretty serious looking cops, they stop the van. Now I don't speak Spanish, but I can understand tone of voice. And that conversation did not sound friendly. <laughs> they were quite happy to drag those boys out and give them a search. And then I suddenly thought, well, I know I don't have anything. Maybe the guys have got five kilos of weed sitting in the right, back. What right. do I know? So what I did, I got out the van, and everybody gone was pointed at me. And I say, oh, my tourist, I just arrived in Mexico. How nice to meet you. You're the welcoming committee. Can I have a photo with you guys? <laughs> Their whole attitude changed. They got these big smiles, and they'll stand there around me with their guns. And at the end, they wished me a really nice time in Mexico. And any thought of searching anything. So I think you have to sometimes yeah. be able to be quick on your feet. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. Yeah. No. God knows what would have happened if those guys had done stuff in that van. <laughs> Yeah, it's better not to know. Yeah, it's, yeah, better. it's better not to know. <laughs> yeah. So I'm curious if you could tell a little bit about the story when you first tried hashish. I was living with my first, well, we never really got married, but husband. Okay. And he was studying medicine. So in his course, apparently, he heard about hashish. And uh, he was just curious what the effect would be. So, as a clinical experiment, he went out and bought hashish. And in those days, you could only buy it by the matchbox full. Okay. There was nothing about grams. You bought a matchbox right, full. Right, matchbox, and <laughs> yeah. you put it in there, and that's... And I forget how much it even cost. Anyway, he made me some joints, and I remember I was lying on the floor with my legs in cycling motion, trying to get to my bed, <laughs> laughing and rolling backwards and forwards, laughing and laughing. I always figure it was love at first talk. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's what I was curious about, you know, was yeah. the immediate connection that you Yes, had. yes, 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 yes. That at first getting high, it just was so exhilarating. And, yeah. And then from there, you know, through your travels, like you mentioned earlier, you weren't necessarily looking at the craft per se as someone maybe like Frenchie. Yeah. But you were around the culture so much. Yeah. You know, so I'm curious if you can talk about some of the places that you went to that are, you know, known as the producing countries. Yeah. And some of the type of hash that you were seeing at that time. Yeah. Well, in those days, the best hash came from Afghanistan. And uh, that the genetics and uh, that the uh, knowledge And they sift out, uh, in the first place, they let the plants go two weeks longer than okay. anyone in the West. 
Because one time I had an Afghan old friend of mine come and look at one of my first gardens. And he was amazed at the fat size of the buds. Because in Afghanistan, which is pretty much a desert, right. that's not happening. And then I told him, okay, we're going to chop it down tomorrow. And he said, tomorrow, why? <laughs> I said, well, over here, people smoke the weed. And now there's about 10% of the crystals getting a bit golden. So that's the time to chop it. And then I thought, let me ask him. I said, you grow to make hash when we do chop it. And he said, two weeks from now. Now, I've never found any grower prepared to let it flower two weeks longer to see if that's really true. But I believe him. Anyway, then they sift it and they put it in big clay pots that are not glazed so it can breathe. They close it off with uh, beeswax and basically until they need to make something to smoke, they just leave it like that and it can stay like that for years pretty much um, in good condition, very good condition. So basically by covering it in the beeswax, even though the clay pot does have some kind of breathability to it, it's in a way still being almost controlled airtight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they take out a bit the size of between a ping pong ball and a tennis ball. And nowadays they put it in heavy duty and tie it up till it's a ball. And then you hold the corners and they beat it with a mallet. And when I was there, big discussion was, should we be using a rubber mallet or a wooden mallet? (laughs) According to them, you got a different result. Right. Yeah. And so when they were taking that resin and beating it with the mallet, that was for use at that time? Yes, that would be for like the next 10 days, two weeks maybe at the most. Okay, Yeah. because that's one of the questions that I have for you, especially from hearing from Frenchie so much, is he has uh, the idea that, I mean, I don't want to speak for him, but he usually refers to hashish as being pressed resin. Yeah. Right, and so I find it very interesting that in your travels, uh, you saw instances where the resin wasn't being pressed immediately. No. But no. being pressed after the fact, essentially. Well, at the moment when they were going to use it. Right. Yeah, and in the meantime, it would just sit like that. Well, the thing also is that when you beat it with a mallet, you're also breaking the cell walls from the trichromes. So the oil comes free. So the hash is very oily as compared to, for instance, Moroccan, where they just put weight on it and all the crystals kind of hang out together. But that's not hash according to the Afghans. You have to break the crystals open and free the oil. But that's probably also why they only make it for like two weeks of use because otherwise the THC and all these things are transforming. Yeah. I'm not a chemist, so you'll have to get that info <laughs> elsewhere. <laughs> but I do know it does change. Yeah. So they smoke it just fresh. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, obviously there was no scientific data. There still isn't to some degree. Yeah. So I'm curious, you know, being around people who have been making hash maybe possibly for centuries within their family. Yeah. How did they learn? Was it just obviously just through experience and... From their grandparents, their grandparents, their grandparents. And for instance, I discovered in that whole eastern part of the world, if you follow the trade, silk trade routes, I was told by my Kazakh professor, you will find the best seeds because it was the tradesmen with their camels that used to go between China and even Italy. Right. And they were the smokers. 
So they would pick the weed. There was nothing like Sansamia around, so right. the weed would have seeds in it. And they would know which was the best weed and drop the seeds would fall along that route. Yeah. So along that route, he says the quality. <laughs> That's funny. That makes better. sense though, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so was it in Afghanistan that they had the loose resin like yeah. this? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And in other parts, like I know you spent quite a bit of time in India. Yeah. Was their practice a little different? Because I know charas is the big thing. Yeah, charas is the big thing. They rub the buds. They don't really separate the crystals. And then you get this, and then they um, form it into blocks immediately. Okay. Yeah. They don't have this whole trick of keeping the crystal and then making the hash. Right. But now it's a much faster turnover. I mean, I'm always, uh, you know, and at last the quality isn't as good as it used to be. Because in, for instance, like a valley like Manali, they made for their local smokers and maybe some of the religious sadhus would come through and take some hash. But now, like every coffee shop in Holland is carrying Milana hash. Right. So, you know, from what was a production of maybe 20 to 50 kilos a year, now they're producing a thousand. Right, it's yeah. definitely scaled yeah. up. And, you know, that's one of the things that I find really interesting about your experience is that you got to see a very different side. So, for example, the plants over there, although I'm sure there is some cultivation, there's a lot of now, wild... Now there is. Right. You know, now that they've got customers, all these coffee shops coming to buy for their... Yeah. Now they cultivate. But in the old days, they just rubbed the wild plants. It was just it was growing wild. everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know... In and that, that's a bit of a pity, I must say, about all this international travel of people. Because then people tend to bring their favorite seeds along. Now, Manali is quite a closed valley, and it's windborne, the pollination. Okay. So if somebody goes and puts a bloody white widow or a cookie and cream over there, it's going to influence all the plants in the whole valley eventually. Right. And I'm kind of afraid that in the end, wherever, the same is happening in Hawaii, the same is happening in Thailand, all these popular places, and, and Jamaica, I saw it happening there, you know, they try and grow these American brands. And I think in any of these countries, in Morocco also, you have a hard time finding the really original plants from that region. Yeah, the land races, I agree, I think have little by little faded yeah you know yeah. i'm sure maybe in some small pockets of the world yeah like in morocco uh, at least i would imagine 25 percent of the dutch coffee shops are owned by moroccans really so they got their whole family back home their whole village back home making just the different varieties you know they don't want just want one kind of ash right they want cookie ash they want this ash they want that ash yeah it was what so, people want yeah you know so that's how a lot of it works down there. Yeah. So I think to find what like 30 years ago was an original Moroccan hash, you'd have a hard time finding that. Yeah, it's kind of, I agree that it's, it's kind of sad that there's been an influence yeah. from outside genetics. Yeah. In, you know. One of the things that really was fascinating to me in regards to the wild cultivation was the idea of altitude affecting, yeah. Yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah the plants yeah they uh, get um, I forget what these rays are called when they're the UV up, rays yeah up above like two and a half three thousand meters so what's that eight thousand feet or something they definitely get a different um, yeah and in some parts of the story or your life yeah. you were 
traveling, you mentioned earlier, the sadhus. Yeah. You know, and that's something I wanted to talk to you about because I feel like in part in cannabis, that's something that kind of gets yeah. not talked about a lot now. Yeah. Right? No, for them, it's a religious thing. Right. And being high is helping them get closer to understanding life, understanding their God. And they have their Shiva God that's their uh, personal. He smokes chillums all the time. So they, as his followers, do the same. It's almost and an they, honoring of Shiva. Yes, yes, right. that's what it is, right. is to get close to him and get more understanding of the whole situation. Anyway, we went up one time with some of these sadhus and they were going to show us the plants they like because the valley in Manali Valley is pretty all these three, uh, nine feet, ten feet tall green plants. Right. And they kind of didn't like those at all. I said, we'll take you where the good plants are. So we climbed up to two and a half thousand meters. Okay. Then they would find these little dells in the mountainside, like a hollow, okay. that had been filled with snow the whole winter. But the plants at the bottom of that dell survived. So they come out the next year, and they don't come up big and green. They come up kind of scraggly, like bonsai plants. Right. And their buds are certainly not much bigger than uh, maybe two, three inches at the most. And then we rub those buds up there. Also, we immediately put them in a chillum and smoked them, so that would help. But that was probably my most amazing hash I ever smoked. Walking down that mountain, it was really like having taken acid. The sound of the brook was like, and the colors were just amazing. And that, I think, still has the full THCA in it if you smoke it within like an hour of harvesting it. Right, it's fresh off the plant and fresh into the chill. So that was a very special smoke. Yeah, that was so interesting to me to hear that they preferred these kind of smaller, scraggly Yeah, yeah. Well, they probably get stronger maybe having survived a winter. Yeah. It would take someone to research that. uh, No, but, you know, that's so interesting or fascinating to me in the sense that they had no, again, scientific knowledge. Knowledge, Obviously, it was like their experiential knowledge, you know. They knew exactly which plants they were after. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Outside of the Afghan hash, what was some of the other hash that was common, I guess, either in Europe or some of that you saw in your travels? Paki, which didn't have a very good reputation. And the last I never made it to northern Pakistan when I could have. Okay. It's kind of become impossible since then. Right. The same as going to Afghanistan, which, by the way, was a more beautiful, wonderful country before the Russians came and the Americans came. It's uh, really changed their lives. But, of course, we were up in uh, Nepal, up in Kathmandu, and... Yeah, just trekking, and when we would trek, we would just rub the plants as we went uh, across the mountains. And yeah, I tried many different kinds. All good. Yeah, would you say, you know, you brought up the point about the the charas and the almost like live THCA. Yeah. Was the effect from the charas and the hash different for you? 
Not at that time, but I must say now they make charas for export to all these coffee shops in okay. Amsterdam. And charas is really dependent on how many times you rub this one particular. But, you know, are you going to rub it five or six times or are you going to rub it to pieces and rub it 30 times? Right. If you do, you're going to end up with bits of leaf and God knows what on your hands. And you'll have a lot bigger production. Right but it won't be the same you quality. You sacrifice a little quality, yeah. A little, a lot, a lot yeah. <laughs> so that's what most of the available jars in Holland is a bit too much uh, leaf too matter. Too much leaf yeah, matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, I was curious when you were mentioning that they import it, obviously. Does the best stuff make it there, you know? I don't know, the best stuff makes it there, but always enough seems to make it there. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> even there's one coffee shop very close to my house, Maybe it's not even the best, but it's very close to my house, so sometimes I go there. Uh-huh. Yeah, you always have Nepali, you always has Kashmir, he has uh, Thai weed, he has all these things that uh, somebody smuggled over. Right, yeah, yeah they got in yeah. there somehow. Yeah. And- I want to take another opportunity to thank our Patreon community for bringing us this episode via their support, and to give a special shout-out to our biggest contributors, Kevin from California, also known as Lifted Indina on Instagram, Kyle from Ohio, the ever-supportive Jennifer, a.k.a. Jen Doe 420 the cool dudes from Mission Melts out in Massachusetts, Eric from Washington, Austin from California, Nate from Arizona, and Connor from Michigan. Episode 12 would not have happened without you guys. So thank you again. Now let's get back to it. You know, you brought up the idea of hash being the kind of predominant form of cannabis in the West. In the East. In the East, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, in the East. I'm curious if you can tell me about kind of how the Dutch cannabis scene developed. You know, I think you mentioned you came back in 98 and the shops were going. Yeah, I left in uh, 68. There was no coffee shops. There was no weed around. And you just went to the right red light uh, area where the sailors came okay. and they would be coming in from uh, Lebanon, from Africa, from Pakistan, Iran even, used to make it, Turkey had its own hash production, all these countries. So it wasn't until I came back to Amsterdam in 88 when all these coffee shops with weed were there that uh, I encountered it. Sorry, now I forgot your exact question. No, no, don't worry. No, I was just asking, you know, from what you remember, how the kind of Dutch cannabis scene... Yeah, so it kind of developed when I wasn't there. Right. You know, when I left, there was nothing. (laughs) And when I came back, there were like 400 coffee shops in town. Wow. All of them selling weed and so... Well, they've closed a bunch now, and there's a lot less now. They made this rule that uh, no coffee shop can be closer than 250 meters from any school. And they count kindergarten uh, daycare places as well, you know, as if those babies are likely to walk <laughs> off into a coffee shop. <laughs> yeah, no, it's so interesting how, like I said earlier. So it really developed when I wasn't there. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and so once you, you got back there, you know, you mentioned earlier, everything you've done really is in part for your survival and the survival of your children. And so what was your motivation to get into the cannabis scene outside of that? When I was a teenager, I used to work on Saturdays in a gardening center. 
and I learned to make clones there. Okay. Not from weed, but from asters, from all kind of different kind of chrysanthemums, you name it. Okay. So then when everybody was starting to go weed in Amsterdam and they were using seeds, I kind of mentioned that I could make clones. Okay. <laughs> and they were very excited because people didn't really have that knowledge. Have that knowledge yeah. yeah, so I got my first job like that and also because I got fat chubby thumbs <laughs> and I managed to make them think that those were green thumbs. <laughs> <laughs> Well, at first they weren't very anxious to have a woman come and work with them. But, uh, Were you the only woman working with them at that time? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's, you know, obviously another very fascinating part is that being a woman, even nowadays, yeah. there's not a lot of women involved in this specific area. Well, what I'm finding out also, that a lot of the guys come up and they won the prizes. And it turns out it's their girlfriend that made it. You know, that happens a lot, but it does happen, right. for sure. Right. So, and then I kind of feel if I ever catch them, one of those girls, the man, go there. Right. <laughs> Be you, you know. Friends, right? yeah. You did the work. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you should get the credit. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Do you feel like it was uh, an extra challenge being a woman? And Probably, but... Um, I was very motivated to earn money (laughs) for those kids. And uh, then with my invention, because it wasn't at that time at all a competition with anyone, you know, they're all seed companies, nutrient companies, light company, all these things, but nobody had anything remotely like my stuff, so I could get on with everybody. Right. And I I didn't start my company till I was 50 when I came back to Holland. So I was older than most of the guys with all their companies anyway. So I have friends pretty much everywhere. Yeah, uh, yeah that's neat. Yeah, you yeah. Know, yeah, I wanted to ask you if there were any people whose relationships kind of stand out to you, whether it's in Amsterdam or elsewhere. Nick T, definitely. I mean, we saw each other just now again. But he came right in the beginning and he just sat there for hours and we talked about making hash. And I always feel he's one of my students that actually brought it to a next level. You right. know, there was so much I could teach him. Right. He continued from there. So I really like that. And now there's, oh, there's so many people that we made hash with. Yeah. Yeah, that must be a very cool feeling to see, yeah, to yeah, see that, yeah. you know. So, you know, we've talked about the pollinator a little bit. And again, like you brought up earlier, your inspiration was having been around, having seen the screening. Yeah. Then saying, hey, you know, this washer yeah. is moving. It's drier. Oh, drier. Yeah, there you go. I'm getting everything in reverse. No, 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 no. The dryer is uh, the dryer is doing what it needs to do motion-wise. Yeah. And then you took out the heating element. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And then... You screen the... Just put a tie, pretty much uh, staple the screen just around the drum for the clothes the first time. Right. And just chuck a whole bunch of material and turn it on and went and had a coffee and came back and, (laughs) whoa, (laughs) it worked, it did. They all fell underneath. (laughs) Well, not all, but... Yeah, yeah, no, a good amount, I imagine. Yes. Was the material that you were working, I'm assuming that it was dry and cured material? It was dry material... We were growing orange bud in those days. We were with a group of a few growers, 
and we could only deal the orange bud clones within our little circle. Okay. Nobody outside was allowed to get it. <laughs> and the orange bud, was that something that was... Uh, had been smuggled from California, California in those days. Yeah, yeah. Okay. In the, must have been in 86, 87, something like that. Okay. Yeah, because okay. I started growing then in 88, 89. And that's after you started doing the job no, oh. that's where that's where I got the I job see. with the clones, and that's okay. where I started uh, growing. Yeah, yeah, that was another kind of cool thing is just hearing all these different. I've been to Amsterdam a couple times, so you know, obviously it's very vertical. Yeah, spaces can be interesting. Yes. So growing in that environment was a challenge. At one point, we had thirteen gardens all through the city. The smallest one was ten lamps. It was in a cellar. Okay. And the biggest one was under twenty lamps. And it was actually two warehouses, and then we had a cloning and a vegetative unit in there as well. And that was a really big one. Yeah. And then a whole bunch of others, and supply the clones for all of them. Yeah, the one that stood out to me was the one, I think you mentioned it was used to be a former dungeon. Yes. Off the canal. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and the snow melting. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, that was quite something. I was quite nervous when I was down there that time. But I just figured, get on with what needs to get done and right. get out of there. And then by that time, all the snow had melted already anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the material that you were using in the pollinator at first? Yeah. Yeah, we had, our, I had my own material. I could use anything I liked. Right. Trim, buds, it was all there. You know, at one, uh, when we had all those gardens, we were like producing 20 kilo a month. Okay, so, yeah, that's quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. And the screen, I'm curious... Did you put a lot of thought into it, or...? We tried different screens, but it was already kind of accepted that for dry sift, 150 is the one. And I must say, we still use 150 on all the pollinators. Right. And just to be clear, that the 150 is, I guess, what they consider the LPI, the lines per inch? Yeah. Measurement? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right, perfect. Yeah. One of the things, again, it seems so strange to me, but it's so interesting at the same time, is... I believe it was off the pollinator hash, but you mentioned in your book that the shops didn't want to carry it yeah. because it was too strong. Yeah, <laughs> that was right at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, but the people who smoked hashish didn't want to smoke it either because the flavor was not what they considered hashish. It was still too much like uh, wheat taste. Too much like yeah, wheat, yeah. yeah. And it is still, actually, right. if you come down to it. Yeah, so I'm curious, like, what you think about that now that you see the newer kind of hash being made yeah well now you get all these extracts and rosins and i must say this last abadoo i was judging the non-solvent okay but so i was expecting something crumbly maybe <laughs> from the dry sift right. or from the water hash yeah nothing was crumbly it was already i already needed a tool to get it out and wipe it on my uh, paper because i made joints and not dab right so it was already hardly looking like what i was expecting non-solvent to look like yeah so they were more uh sticky or kind of gooey. Yeah, they were all glued together. Yeah, I got to see both the solvent, I mean, non-solvent and rosin entries, and yeah. they were a lot like of very this. impressive. Well, now with the heat, it's gluing together. But this before, last night, you did like this, and it just shook down like little crystals. Right. 
But with the heat now, it's all gluing together. Yeah, Miami is kind of a humid, uh, yeah, humid place for resin. But yeah. At what point did you feel like, okay, the pollinator is working? Let's make some units to see if other people may be interested. Or did somebody approach you? Well, I was still growing. And then we had this big greenhouse, of which there's a picture in the book. Yes. And that got bust. Okay. And suddenly I realized, man, you got four kids. You shouldn't be doing this. If anything happens to you, you know, you're a single parent family. Right. I don't want to run that risk. I don't want to do this anymore. Certainly not on that kind of scale. Right. You know, that's not very... Uh, <laughs> yeah, 14 rooms and it was a lot. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and I'd already made the first uh, pollinator actually in 92, but that one was just purely for personal use and okay. some friends. And there was only one. <laughs> right, right. Personal, yeah. But then, because my friends did like it, a lot of them, even though it was too strong. But anyway, so I decided to start manufacturing them. Got a guy and we made a bunch. And the first one was shown in Amsterdam and it was unveiled by Robert Clark. So he's a big uh, hash connoisseur. Yeah. And I think he more than anyone, even than me, realized the significance of this first mechanical method to separate the crystals. Because he'd studied already hash for so long and everywhere it's always done by hand. I was never so, yeah, and that's basically now why I came to Ash Green and all the rest of it. <laughs> no, you know, that's it's so funny that. So from then on, we started manufacturing them. Yeah. That you piece those two things together, you know, yeah. the, the screening and, and I don't know what you call it, automation, yeah. but yeah, yeah, I mean, some kind yeah. of automation. And then obviously. Well, sometimes I think it's. Could hardly have been a man that would use a clothes dryer as a basis for making hash. <laughs> and then later I did it with a washing machine. Which man would have thought, oh yeah, let's try making hash in a washing machine. Right. <laughs> yeah. But actually it's perfect. That washing machine was designed to get your dirty socks clean. And for that washing machine to wash off the crystals off of the leaf, so long as the water is cold enough, it's an expert. It does a very thorough job. Yeah, I agree. I think the, the addition of water has been a big yeah. change and positive change. Well, I must say that people who really like the aroma and the taste of their what they're smoking, the dry sift is better. Okay. I think a lot of the taste is just on the outside of that little crystal, either probably in the shape of terpenes, and some of them are maybe water-soluble, and they get washed away once you put That's it true. in water. So uh, the isolator, for me, has less taste, but it's stronger. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I'm curious, you know, we've talked about the pollinator. At what point did you hear people working material with water? That came from the States. Okay. Oh, and I can't think of his name now. But he was already busy with water, and I was with my American girlfriend in Amsterdam, and we tried it just in a cup, and we put water, and we put ground up butt, and stirred it. Okay. And it became a big mess. But, because it was a glass, you could see that at the bottom there were some crystals collecting. Right. That was the first time. But I think we spilled that cup. I don't know, in the end the kitchen was a big mess. But we had seen some form of separation. But 
It was very difficult to get it separate from all that leaf that was floating just right above it. Right. Anyway, it was a bit messy. And then some guy invented this machine, an American guy, and he didn't want his name to be known, so I was going to be the world distributor for that machine. And it was a big wooden machine with a stainless steel kind of drum in it, with a plastic funnel and a bottle at the bottom. And it worked great, even before the word ice had been added to the whole story. It already worked great. But it was huge, and it had holes where a mixer fitted, and the problem was it was being made in Yugoslavia, and where they had soldered the plastic together, they did it inside out. So within six months, all those funnels burst open, made a huge mess, and the machine was unusable, basically. So everybody got very mad at me because I was the one I was distributing. Right. Especially when I sent six of them to Australia and just the transport of this big wooden machine. So I was trying to rack my brains. How could I get this idea of this screen, like horizontal in water, that I could just put in an envelope, you know, and wouldn't have to. And I started off being a tailor, being involved with cloth, so it didn't take too long to figure out, yeah, just make a bag and a bucket and sew in the screen, and it'll be pretty horizontal. Right. I still got the first one that I sold on my own machine. Well, actually, I gave it to a friend of mine who's starting a mobile hash museum, so he's got my first. (laughs) That's very cool that it'll be there, though, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a part of history, really. You know, let's talk about that machine a little bit, a little bit more. So I'm curious, why do you think it was made of wood? Do you know if there was a reasoning behind that? I have no idea why it was stainless steel and wood. And the problem was because it has this stainless steel lid with these holes where that particular mixer fit. Right. The mixers in Australia didn't fit in those holes. Right. You know, so I was just trying to, you know, you can get a bucket, you can get a mixer, you can get everything all over the world. Just I need to have the screen at a certain height and uh, just I have to work on that. Yeah. So actually I more or less achieved what I was looking for, something I could just put in an envelope, two or three bags at a time and people could use them. Right, yeah, yeah. the isolator bags were yeah. born. Yeah. Um, you know, I visited Amsterdam, I think it was the first time in 2003. Okay. And I remember yeah, the isolator pictures yeah. up on the walls yeah. and it was, uh, I remember my friend, you know, buying some on his following trip and he told me yeah you know the guy who sold it to me he's like you gotta be careful <laughs> you know like this is really strong and they would sliver a little piece off for you you wouldn't even have to buy like a gram of it yeah 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 and oh some of it was man oh I bet incredible I bet. strong yeah. and was that what was deemed and forgive me if I'm pronouncing this wrong netter hash yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so that the isolator hash basically netter being short for Nederland right so Dutch hash. Right. Yeah. So the Dutch hash really was kind of this original water hash that was being filtered yeah, through the Yeah, and some people also dry sifted it. Okay. And they would mix it with uh, bad hash or you know, a lot of mixing goes right. on over there. Right. <laughs> Mixes. It's funny. Yeah, the isolator bags really were, I feel like, ahead of their time. Yeah, yeah. The first time I stood at a expo with them, everybody just walked right by. I had no idea what I was suddenly doing with bags hanging all over my boots. 
right. uninterested. Right. Why is she making shopping bags? <laughs> <laughs> if only they knew they could turn so much of I know, their, I know. Uh, in the end, they learned. In the end. But it took a while. Yeah. So, you know, before... Well, even for the pollinator, it took a while. I remember in the beginning... These American girls came by and they were convinced that hash came out of a chocolate factory, just a hash factory. <laughs> they had no idea it had anything to do with a marijuana plant. Right? Yeah, yeah. That's, that, that's so funny to me because I, I could see that. Like, I think when people sometimes talk about hash, especially people that maybe haven't been around it for a while and maybe yeah. had been, it's almost seen as like a separate thing from cannabis. Yeah. Know? It's like, yeah. oh, it comes from this? You know, yeah. it's so yeah. strange. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but funny. Yeah. So you've always seemed like a very resourceful person. I think I like to think that because of the problems faced having these four, three times a meal day kids, right. you learn to think out of the box. Yeah. Yeah. You have to. Yeah. <laughs> to get by. <laughs> yeah. And you know, we've talked. I think that's what they call it. But I think come up with well, unexpected solutions to problems. Yeah. 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 And I mean, you know, you, again, you had very interesting tra trajectory. I know you had kind of the tea house, yeah, right? Yeah, and in the old days. Yeah, yeah you did the, the fashion. Yeah. You did, the, obviously, the traveling and yeah. many things in there and then in the cannabis world. So, you know, we've talked about your children a few times. How difficult was it for you to pursue your heart or your passions with the responsibility of having four you know, humans depending well, on... It was basically a necessity. I was just telling Jen this morning, when I was 14, 15, I wanted to be an artist. But when you have a bunch of kids, <laughs> art ain't gonna give them three meals a day. Right. <laughs> you gotta think of something else. And having already learned and loved plants all my life, to get into the weed industry because of knowing how to make clones was just kind of a natural next step. And right. It suited everybody perfectly. I know my kids complained in the beginning a bit. I said they should be glad I wasn't dealing coke or heroin. <laughs> <laughs> and that it was just weed and that I'd been smoking it all my life, the hash out of the weed. And so they calmed down. <laughs> I said, you know, you like to wear nice shoes. You complain one more time, you can go and work yourself and buy your own shoes, you know? <laughs> yeah, the money has to come from somewhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah as a as a parent myself, I definitely can relate to that. So, so, you know, with the isolator bags, I mentioned the micron screens in regards to the pollinator. Yeah. What further kind of testing did you have to do to figure out which were the microns that were? All of them, all of them, because with the water, basically the 150 on the dry sift will all the major, all the crystals will basically fall through. Okay. On the water hash, you need like a 185 or a 220 for all the crystals, because there's not only the crystal in that tiny little hole, there's also a bit of water in there. Right. So all the holes have to be a that little bit bigger. And that was just through trial and error. We discovered that the 185 is good for like in Europe when you grow outdoors, there's not enough sun that you get really big crystals for crystals that are a little bit smaller. Okay. And if you're in California, you need the right. 220 right. for the crystals to fall through. And you can use the 185 as a cleaner bag. Yeah. But usually we mostly sell like three bag sets, otherwise you're just dividing your uh, 
harvest into six little piles instead of just having two piles, you know? Right, so yeah, so your 220 bag usually I think is the... That's a bag that yeah, holds the, cleaner, the material. Right? Yeah. And so that holds a lot of the actual plant matter. Yeah, that holds all the plant matter, yeah. And then you have your 70. And that collects all the big crystals. And then your 45. That collects all the small crystals. Yeah, so it's very straightforward. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And okay, maybe if you're trying to win a prize or something, because usually most people just use trim. Right. Because the trim is a useless article, but if you look closely, it's covered with crystals. Right. So that's like uh, income from nothing. Make trash out of your uh, or make hash out of your trash. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's true. And you know, before. But if you want to win a prize, you should use buds and maybe use some different size screens to get just the right perfect size yeah, for I winning. Yeah, I think people now are super, super technical about it. Yeah. Like you talked about nicotine, like. Yeah. You know, oh, he can talk level, about it. Right? Yeah. You know, yeah. and uh, yeah. this idea of just essentially purifying or getting the, yeah. the resin as clean yeah. as possible. If you just have a three bag set and you do it right and make sure that your water remains the cold temperature it needs to be, it should look like caviar. It should look like his. But people are usually greedy and they want to wash longer and think they're going to get more product. Right. But everything that gets added is what you didn't want. Right. Yeah. Similar to what you were saying about the charas, you know? Yeah. You do three rows yeah. or you do yeah. 30 rows, yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah. And you were saying earlier, you know, you, you like the taste of the dry sift a little more than the water hash. Do you feel that like the I water hash is a little stronger? Oh, a lot stronger. I like to smoke the water hash. Okay. I must admit, the other one, it has a better taste and flavor and aroma. But I like the strong one. <laughs> and you mentioned that you don't dab, so... Not very often, right. no, really. Uh, only if people pretty much... <laughs> please! Right. A big request. Yeah. So There's three pictures in my book about me dabbing. I'm all excited to be dabbing. And then the third picture, I got my face all covered up. After it's dabbing. like, yeah. <laughs> You know, it's like smoking a whole spliff in one talk. Yes. And all this coughing that people do, I want to avoid that. My lungs are too old to be have to cough like that several times a day. <laughs> yeah, it, it can be a little harsh, for sure. Yeah. You know, and uh, yeah, like you said, and it's, I, it's if, a if I do do it and, and and I cough like that, I can feel it, man. I shouldn't. I should avoid having to cough like that. <laughs> and so your preferred smoking is still joints? Yeah, the old way that I started smoking 55 years ago now. I have some tobacco and hash, and that's it. And nowadays I'm trying to cut down on the tobacco. So I make little baggies for myself that hold 1.7 gram tobacco, and that's it for the day. Okay, it's almost rushing it out. Yeah, yeah, that's less than two cigarettes, so. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. Yeah, you know, that's something I've always found interesting about when I've gone to Amsterdam is, you know, in places where tobacco isn't supposed to be smoked in theory, it's Everybody. always being smoked. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, everybody smokes their joints with tobacco. We didn't, like over here, everybody learns to smoke pure joints. Right. But over there, nobody ever smokes pure joints. Yeah. And it started from, I guess, because we only had hash, right. and it's not really possible to smoke hash without mixing it with something. Right. And there was no weed then, so you mixed it with tobacco. So then when the first weed came along, they mixed some weed with the tobacco, kind of. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, it's yeah, true. Yeah, like yeah. you said earlier, you know, 
nobody was smoking weed because no. there was no weed. There was no right? weed. Nobody it was, was all hash. Yeah. And then as the I mean, you know, in my world anyway, I'm not saying there really wasn't. Right. But I never heard of it either. Right. I never met Yeah, it wasn't like a there. common thing no. that you would see. No, not in the sixties. You know, I'm curious on in all these different places that you've been and all these experiences that you've had, has there been one place that best expresses you? There are several places. I don't have a driving license. My parents in those days thought my husband would have one. Okay. And then moving to India, you don't want to learn driving <laughs> over there. I just have I one. Tra- <laughs> I just have one traffic rule, <laughs> and the biggest vehicle has right of way. <laughs> you better know. And lots of honking. <laughs> yeah. lots of so um, that excludes a lot of countries, among others, America. Okay. And I love the space here. You know, compared to Europe, you guys have so much space, and I really like that. But to live here, you know, to come and visit, people don't mind <laughs> driving me around. But if you really live here and you want to go to the supermarket an hour away once a week, how long are you going to have friends? <laughs> yeah, you're right. There's a lot of space here, but you know, I live in Texas, and it's even more exaggerated. Than yeah, 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 it's, yeah. I joke how it takes 20 minutes to get outside of your neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I have this good friend of mine in New Hampshire, and yeah, she travels at least an hour to get to the closest supermarket, which isn't even the nice one that she likes. <laughs> right, she's yeah. just closer. Yeah. So America's excluded. Then there's several other places that I really love, but my grandchildren live in Holland. So what am I going to do? Move away permanently and go and live in Australia or something? No, I'm going to stay in their neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure it's it's hard to get away from. You know, whatever else the family is, the main priority. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where the family is, is where home is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like this whole trip is geared so that I finish, fly home on the 18th, and hopefully get rid of my jet lag so I can cook Christmas dinner for all of them. Beautiful. <laughs> nice. Yeah, that'll be nice. Yeah. And do you get to see all your children at? that one time? Yeah, they'll all come over. Well, they uh, all live in Holland now. My youngest son lived, worked in Scotland for five years, but they all live in Holland now, so they'll be over, yeah. Yeah, that, that must be a nice feeling as well. And two of them live in Amsterdam, so it's easy. Okay, cool. And you live in Amsterdam yourself? And I live in Amsterdam myself. So, yeah. And you were saying earlier you frequent one of the shops still? I'm curious what shop that is. Oh, is this near your home? The Ears to Hulup. Okay. And Ears to Hulup in English means first aid. They're very nice people. They have a great selection. I cannot afford to buy isolator hash in their <laughs> shop when they use my machines. It's too bloody expensive. <laughs> Just remind them, you made them the bag. I know, I know, but uh, as far as they're concerned, business is business. Of course. <laughs> you know, in your book you mention when you're talking about the water hash, how Soma comes over. Yeah. And he's the guy who's like, just smoking a ton of this thing where everybody else it's a little bit too strong for them yeah 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 no he loves it is he somebody that you have a like a friendship with outside of the business well I must say yes but he lives four flights of stairs up very steep narrow stairs and I must say the last two years I haven't ventured all the way up there okay it's just too much yeah like I said it's very vertical so I understand it's very vertical and his place is super vertical so, but he comes down and we meet up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I'm good friends with him. One person that I wanted to ask you about just because uh, he's become kind of a legendary figure, I feel like, 
and he passed away recently is Neville. Yeah, I was never very close with Neville, for sure we would meet right. in the old days at the high times. But I think he was leading quite a secluded space. And right. I don't even know if he was always in Amsterdam. He seemed also to go, I forget now, maybe even to Australia or some strange place like that. Okay, was he Dutch? I was, I'm always no, curious. no, he was American. He was American, okay. He was originally brought over, yeah, I guess since. Yeah. yeah, you know, and that's another kind of curious thing to me that in general I'm curious about is, like you talked about the orange bud yeah. coming from the U.S. Yeah. Well, over there, everybody was just growing canary seeds. <laughs> you know, that's how most Dutch people started. Right. <laughs> so, do you feel like a lot of the kind of stronger genetics were brought over from the U.S. and that's kind of... In the beginning, like uh, you had Sam and he brought, or he brought over skunk and people like Neville, they brought over some things. But then you got these Dutch guys like Arian, like Ben Dronkers, Sensi Seed, uh, Serious Seeds. And Holland has always been a very agricultural country. And I think because our weather is so shit, we've developed really good greenhouse techniques. Okay. And of course, with the tulips, we're really into breeding. Right. So they got going on it and they created a whole lot of the original famous seeds like AK-47 and Sensi Star and Yeah, the ones whatever. that are kind of classic. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, yeah. That's so fascinating, and you know, another thing that stood out to me when I was there. So is very soon, people got to, did get able to get Dutch seeds, but that's like more starting in the '90s, early '90s. Okay, yeah. yeah. So maybe the American influence came like in the '80s, something, and then yeah. turned yeah. into the '90s, yeah. and then you know these hazes. Yeah. You see so many hazes yeah. in Amsterdam. Do you think, in part, that has to do with the weather? Do they lend know. themselves better to be growing there? I don't know, because it's pretty humid and it's pretty. Early in the season, it starts getting rainy before really there's time for any natural flowering weed plant to be mature. Okay. In Holland, they tend to go into flowering around the 4th of September if they are just not uh, like these, what do they call it, these immediately flowering varieties. The autoflowers. Autoflowering. Yeah. But just if it's a natural plant, it'll start flowering around 4th of September. So if you add eight weeks flowering onto that, man, you're in November. Well, in November, it gets dark at four in the afternoon. Right, <laughs> It yeah. gets light at like 9.30, 10 o'clock. So there's no way that any plant is going to benefit from being outside. And it's raining all the time. Right. No, that's, it's it's true. You know, it, it just, that makes it even more curious to me as to why yeah. uh, it might be just a popular choice amongst people there. That, that yeah, is. yeah. I don't know. If, uh, I've never really grown hay, so I don't know if it takes longer, if it has special requirements, but I know it's very popular in Holland. Right. But I think those seeds maybe have come over from uh, the Hindu Kush, you know, all these Kush seeds, because that was what travelers went to. Right. I came through Afghanistan. Right. There was Afghan seeds there. Now, I wasn't particularly collecting them, but over the years, I know that uh, Ben Drunkers from uh, Sanzi Seed, he went to Afghanistan to pick out seeds. Yeah, and at a time where the genetics were still could. probably, yeah. Yeah, where it was still okay to do so. Yeah, yeah. and what I find so interesting about that in, in correlation to So that. they had the American influence, like with the orange bud. Right. But they had a lot of influence, like from um, all these Eastern countries. Right. Yeah, it's true. It, yeah. it was like a, a merging yeah. 
which yeah. turn into the and then you had a and then you had a bunch of clever geneticists who mixed and matched it got some good combinations going yeah yeah I never got into seeds I must say because according to me you need five generations to have a proper seed, stable stable seed and uh, I could I wouldn't have had the time myself and I, I never really found someone I could trust to do it the way I wanted to, to right. do it <laughs> yeah and you know the you, you brought up the greenhouse that got busted that was actually a, like a rose yeah, 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 right? yeah, 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 um, yeah, yeah. So, like you said, the the Dutch. It's interesting how like the different things came to play. Yeah. Right. The bad weather. Yeah. The ingenuity when it came to the greenhouse and how that led to the advancement of the cannabis. I mean, they're really perfecting. My daughter, she went to uh, open greenhouse day. Okay. And uh, she went especially to this one greenhouse. It's about in yards, maybe 200 yards wide, and maybe a thousand yards long. Okay. And in the beginning, the plants start in um, a cell propagation. Okay. And at the end, they move the whole time. Wow. At the end, this was not about weed, but they're in right. cardboard boxes ready for the auction. Wow. And this place is run by two people, one for the plant and one for the technology. And everything is moving the whole time. The light, the nutrients, everything changes as they move That's along. Unbelievable. And uh, so to have a whole operation like that and to be able to run it with two people, I'm always kind of over here and people proudly say, oh, we got 2,000 people working at this place. <laughs> and they go, they have two and they're doing the same amount of work. Uh, uh, yeah. That's... Uh, that's including all the manicures. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. No, that but that's very that's very interesting and always very ingenious, you know. Yeah, they're really good at that, the Dutch. Yeah. Yeah. Climate you know, control. The subject of being Dutch, you know, is there any characteristics that you would say specifically apply more to being Dutch than? When I lived in India for fourteen years, I would come back occasionally to Holland, but I also went to New York and California because I had a knitting company over there, then, so okay. I was traveling, and I found. A very similar mentality between the Dutch and the New Yorkers, somehow, their openness and directness, which is totally not happening in India. You know, they will never tell you they don't know where the hell what you're asking. Them. They will give you some answer. <laughs> Almost a sense of politeness. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so in New York and in Holland, they would just tell you outright, we have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> kind of attitude yeah in England that's also not absent they're also much more winding in their uh, connections yeah no again it's it's so interesting to see the cultural differences yeah. you know and in India it's very much so man you shouldn't even look a guy in the face because he'll think you're trying to make advances <laughs> so I had a big problem with that then coming back <laughs> to the west <laughs> it's perfectly okay to people in the eye. At men <laughs> yeah 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 but they immediately think that uh, <laughs> of course and then I was a lot younger so they would use the opportunity to reach out <laughs> <laughs> well Mila I'm so thankful for your time I know we've been talking a little bit I'll start kind of winding it down and just have a few yeah. more questions okay you know one of the things that stood out to me in your story in regards to the isolator and the bubble bags so when you created the pollinator yeah you mentioned in, this, in your story that you went to seek 
almost like a trademark. Oh, to get a patent. Yeah, maybe. a patent. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there's a couple of things that I found interesting. One is that you were supposed to get the patent before... You're supposed to apply for a patent a year before you're allowed to put it on the market. Okay. Or that was the case in uh, Europe, Holland, right. anyway. And so when I came there, I came with my first newspaper article about them <laughs> and with a machine under my arm. Yeah. And I said, you're too late, man. We can't, even if we wanted to, we couldn't. But they said, you wouldn't have got a patent in 1800 and something, somebody invented something for sifting flour or sand and rocks or something. I said, you just got a new use for it and we wish you loads of luck. They wow. were very formal, they were quite nice. <laughs> yeah. So do you know the, the piece of machinery that they were referring to back from the 1800s? Obviously this was more than likely a hand. I know that in India along the roadside, you have these long machines, maybe nearly as long as this uh, veranda and at one and it'll be like chicken wire and it'll get coarser and coarser as it moves along. And then they roll rocks in when they get rocks and they want to sort them, like they need big rocks for at the bottom when they're laying a road. Right. And little rocks to spread out over the top. Right. So it'll sort those rocks in different gradations. Okay. And the little ones will come out first actually. And then the, then the bigger ones. So, or no, the bigger ones would come out. Anyway, I got it all figured out. And those machines I've seen working. So I presume it's something like that. Okay. Because they did say sand, rocks, right. flour. So, yeah. yeah. And so that leads me into asking about the bags. So when you created the bags, did you seek that patent as well? No, my lawyer said you cannot get a patent on something that is just made of cloth. I see. He said that you get a patent on something technical, uh, you know, it, it needs something more than <laughs> right. just a bag. Right. <laughs> so, I don't know, I didn't even try at that moment. I just, in Dutch, we have a saying, just go with that banana. So I thought, yeah, let's just go with that banana and see where, we, where it ends up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, and the reason I asked is just because it seemed like down the line, that a, lot issues, of, right? a lot of people copied them. I try not to look at it or think about it. And sometimes I used to get pissed off and angry about it. But the only one who's suffering for that is you yourself. So right. better just... Yeah. yeah. It's just the way it is. And you were originally having your bags produced in Nepal, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, by this guy who sold them then also to Bubble Bag. Right. You know, it's so interesting to me, the machine... So at that moment, I was very angry. And I forget exactly who I spat in their face, whether it was Bubble Man himself or the guy who was sewing them. But one of them in the middle of the high times, I spat in their face. I was so pissed off. Well, because he had someone claim that he had invented it. So then that really got me going. <laughs> yeah, I can see how that would be. Yeah, that was going a bit too far. Yeah, yeah. But one of the things I find interesting is, you know, the machine that you were essentially selling for someone else was, you said, made in Yugoslavia. Yeah, and then the bags were being made in Nepal. Yeah. Was there a reason for that? I said outside of manufacturing costs, I guess. Yeah, I started off by having a Turkish tailor in Amsterdam. But yeah, I mean, in Nepal, it was like a quarter of the price. And right. I also felt good. You know, I'd lived in the East and I know those people, they also need jobs. Right. And, uh, 
you're giving several families uh, an income. So yeah. I felt okay about that before I realized that he was just copying to sell to Bubble Man. <laughs> and I'm curious. I had some issues about that, but. <laughs> yeah, I'm, that was part of the story that I, I didn't know personally, yeah, yeah, you know, but yeah. yeah, hearing that it's the same person who was making them was, uh, that was a little odd situation. Yes, yes, it was. Not much you can do about it. No, like you said, you know, you just. Just uh, happens, happens spit him in the face him. and never work with him again. <laughs> uh, I'm curious, where do you produce your bags now? In China. In China, okay. That's Which is also not quite uh, secure, but I've given up on that. I mean, I got asked a couple of years ago if I wanted to buy bubble bags. <laughs> so I was ever making these bags. <laughs> thought I could be a good customer. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. I don't think I even ever told him. I don't know how many people they wrote that and how many people took them up on it. Yeah, the, obviously the, the, those became very popular. Yeah, you know, but because I, they're also the cheapest. I always figure that from the three products I sell, financially it's about even. Okay. We sell the way the lace pollinators because they cost way the most. Right. But financially it work out about the same as how many, many more of the isolators we sell. Right. And then the washing machines also, approximately. You know, one of this, these parts of creating all these businesses because of necessity or not, you definitely seem to have an entrepreneurial spirit. You know? And, but at the same time, through reading your book, it seemed like, you know, you, you have a very passionate heart. Mm. And so sometimes, the quote-unquote commercially successful businesses you would lose interest in after a while. Well, once it's successful, it's the challenge is gone. Right. You know? Is that what it, <laughs> what it was for you? Yeah. The challenge is gone. But obviously, I stuck with this one because it just worked and, and, and gave us an income. And, right. And all my kids could get the opportunity to go to university. And otherwise, I couldn't have done that if I'd... God knows what else I would have been doing, but this just worked for me. Yeah. Yeah. This yeah. Is your yeah. Going back to this idea of the lifetime achievements. Yeah. <laughs> if there was a female that you could kind of bestow an acknowledgement like that on, alive or not, who would that be? Maybe it would be this old friend of mine who has died, and I can't even come up with her name right now. And she used to travel the world with a mallet. Guess what she was doing? She was going everywhere, and everywhere she'd be beating the hash, and she could tell you so exactly the quality of every hash, because she said, some in 40 beats, it's done. Some take like 300 beats till it's done. Right. And she kind of passed away without anybody really knowing about her, but she, for me, did a lot of research in her own way. Right. And <laughs> when I think of her name, but she is in the book, so somewhere she must be there. Uh, she, I'll let you know. Names, I'm just so bad at nowadays. No, that's all right. I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's been maybe some time since you've seen her. You know, so. Oh yeah, she died maybe about eight, nine years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm sure there's so many people really that you know have been passionate or in love with cannabis resin. And yeah, like her, who have had these experiences and have a wealth of knowledge that people will never get to see or hear. You yeah, know, it was almost. It's mainly uh, guys who uh, really got involved. Right. 
I know uh, women over there and in Holland, but men, most of them are just consumers. Although there is producers, but not nearly as many as the men, except for the secret ones who do it for their men. <laughs> you only find out after where it really came from. My final question is, if I could talk to anybody in the hashish world, whether it's a hash maker, hash historian, who do you feel like would be somebody important to speak to? Well, there's, of course, quite a number of them, and uh, someone like Robert Clark and Sam Skongman, they live in Amsterdam. Well, actually, Robert Clark travels a lot, but Frenchie's a pretty good choice. You know, at least he has also some inter good experiences and insights. Nikati is always up there for me, <laughs> and he can word very well what he's doing. Right. You know, I'm not a chemist, I'm not a scientist, I can just kind of tell you. <laughs> But he knows his stuff. <laughs> he does. He does. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah. I spent a little bit of time with Nick this week, uh, and yeah, he's very knowledgeable. For yes, he's very, very passionate. Yes. Too, yes. So. Yes. Well, Vila, again, I am honored. I am so thankful for your time and for th getting to spend a little time with you and getting to meet you. I want to thank you for driving all the way over here. Of course. <laughs> I don't course. know where you came from, but most of it isn't close to here. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was. It's my pleasure. And I feel honored that you wanted to talk to me. Of course, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you want to follow Mila on Instagram, you can follow her at Mila Hashcream. And you can also visit her site. It's pollinator.nl. Yep. And you can find all her information, her book, the bags, pollinator, everything, everything. there. Yeah. Mila, is there anything else you'd like to say? Follow your dreams and stay high. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll catch you next time. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Hashish Inn. If you'd like the podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. Until next time.